Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back everyone to the Money Advantage podcast. We're really excited to be with you this morning. I'm Rachel Marshall and I've got my co-host Bruce Wainer with me this morning. And we are looking forward to a wonderful conversation about savings, savings rates, the amount of money that people are saving, why this is all happening. And more importantly, if right now you are in a position of saying, hey, look, I really want confidence and certainty. I really want to have savings that I can access. But where in the world should I save my money where it's actually working for me? We are going to answer that question. It seems like the whole world wants to know. And I hope that you are one of those who is also wanting to know the answer to this question. Bruce, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Rachel. Yeah, I I hope this is just like a, a simplistic explanation of basic economic principles and why they're currently happening. Absolutely. I really appreciate you sent me an article and this was a CNBC article. I will share the link to the article um, in a moment when I have a chance to do that. So I'm not trying to think and do something at the same time. But this, the point of this article, it says at the top, savings interest rates hit rock bottom just as Americans stash away more cash. Well, that sounds like we have kind of this perfect storm happening. We have in the midst of everything that's happened in our world in the last year, we're looking for security and guarantees and more people are saving and less spending. The savings amount is tremendously increased just in a very short period of time. And yet we have interest rates, one of the lowest that they've ever been. So we kind of have this dichotomy happening where more people want savings, but the savings environment is worse than ever. And so this kind of hits us in, I mean, I would say a perfect storm of saying, how in the world am I going to accomplish the purpose that I really want? So if you are listening today, um, we'll kind of have this this question throughout the show today, because maybe you're jumping in right now, maybe you're jumping in um, towards the middle of the show. But if you're in a position of saying, I want to save more money, I would love to hear your comments why are you looking to save right now? Is savings an important part of your financial life to you right now? Why is that? And what are your frustrations with saving? I'm watching the chat just so that we um, can see if you have comments and questions, and we would love to answer these live. But first, Bruce, let's talk a little bit about why do you think more people are saving? Well, I think it's uh, the coronavirus um, has caused people to get into a fear mode. That's the oh, main yeah. That's the main reason uh, that people are saving more. According to the article, uh, savings rate hit a historic of 33% in April. And I think that makes sense because a lot of people were sheltering in place. They maybe don't have the normal habits of saving that much money, but they they didn't have anything to spend it on Mm -hmm. at that particular time. Uh, since then. Yeah, uh, actually, Bruce, let's just go back to that for a second. I mean, if you are anything like me, I, I mean, everything was closed at that point. You couldn't, if you had wanted to, I don't think, I can't remember. I mean, we've had so many changes over time, but I don't know if you could go out to restaurants. I know for sure that there was a lot of things that were closed. I mean, we had just gotten a zoo pass for our family for the year and we couldn't use it. We They were doing the, these membership swaps with other places in the community that we were really looking forward to using. And those places were shut down as well. There was basically nothing to do besides hike outside, go to the beach. Well, you don't really go to the beach in April, but I mean, it was outdoors or it was at your house. You don't go to the beach in April, but there's a lot of other people. <laughs> had the opportunity to go to, to April, so. maybe a little further south i don't know it uh, you know people do try in this uh, maybe like a polar plunge or something but it's still pretty cold in april <laughs> in virginia in the ocean right but i was talking about like yes like florida oh yeah Texas, california oh that's true yeah so there's still some people hitting the beach during that time period and probably surfers that, too was, which doesn't cause a whole lot of uh, money to do that and right. uh, however, currently the savings rate is still near uh, 13%, which according to the latest data of the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis is higher than it has been in four decades. 
So this is still a very, very um, high savings rate. And I think it's, uh, even though the economy is starting to open up a little bit, I believe people still have fear. So they're still, they're still hesitant to, to spend. Um, and obviously it's not completely open. Um, I don't know how it is across the nation. Uh, there are still restaurants in some states that cannot even open at all. I know here in uh, Missouri and Arizona, it's at uh, 50% capacity. The two, the two states that I uh, spend a lot of time in. And I know there's many, many other states uh, across the river here in Illinois. It was at 25% for the longest time and so on and so forth. So obviously, even if you wanted to spend money, a lot of people cannot spend money. But let's, I think one of the things we ought to start out with is to talk about how interest rates you know, traditionally were set, how they have changed to be set a different way, and then how those, both of those factors how actually are affecting today's interest rates. Absolutely. So, so traditionally, um, before the Federal Reserve got too much involved in setting interest rates, um, this was a buy and selling of money by a bank. And, and it sounds kind of weird, but in order to actually lend money to make money for a bank, they have to have a certain amount of money. And so the way banks competed in the open market was to uh, say, hey, if you bring your money over here, we will actually pay you X amount of percent, whether it's 5% or 6%. Heck, in the early 80s, it got all up to the double digits of CDs um, so, so that you they were paying in double digits. And the reason they did that is they were competing for that money to go into their bank. So now they can make loans with that money. Mm -hmm. um, that's just buying and selling money when you think about it. So I'm going to buy your money from you for a certain interest rate. And then I'm going to sell your money to somebody else at a certain interest rate in the form of a loan. And it got so competitive there for a while, a while that, um, I can remember uh, banks would actually give you prizes on a top of that. Come in and get a free toaster oven. I know that sounds kind of <laughs> odd now, but it's like you can get a toaster oven if you open up a savings, you know, account or a checking account. Or some people would say, you know, they would say, uh, you you mentioned going to the zoo here in St. Louis. It was like get four tickets to Six Flags over oh. in America. So they would actually entice people with these little gifts. Uh, cardinal baseball tickets were a big thing. I can remember that people would say, you open up an account and get four Cardinal baseball tickets. So not only were they enticing you by an interest rate, they were uh, trying to get you with other little amenities uh, along the way. So that's how you, you really are looking at setting interest rates in a free market. Now, the Federal Reserve wasn't always free, but when the Federal funds rate was actually higher, then it really didn't make a whole lot of sense whether you were getting it from the Federal Reserve or whether you were getting it from uh, the general public. But as the economy, uh, especially during the coronavirus, um, has, has been affected, the, Fed, the Fed's, Federal Reserve has come in and pushed the, the federal funds rate way down to almost zero. In, so, in some months, it is zero. So that now the overnight lending between banks is very, very low, next to nothing, so that they can actually obtain money more cheaply than actually having to entice people to bring their money into. So they basically, I don't want to say they have too much money, but they, they have uh, two things that really hit here. They have more money than they need because they can get it from another source, the Federal Reserve. And because the economy is not booming, they're also not lending money at the same rate. So they can't get rid of the money that they have in the form of loans. And they have a lot more money than they need. So this has pushed the interest rates way, way down because they don't have to entice people to bring their money in because people are just storing it there because of fear in the first place to the tune of some, somewhere north of $17 trillion in U.S. banks. So that's a, an important number. No, it's interesting as well. If you are just thinking, okay, well, we're kind of talking about the bank side of things and the federal reserve side of things. 
What about my side of things? What about me as the customer of the bank? I mean, you can look at the bank wanting your money more when they're willing to pay you more on it. And when they're not paying you as much, they don't need your money as much to continue their operation. I mean, would that be a fair way of simplifying? It's basic economics and everything. So it's supply and demand. So if there's Mm -hmm. a big supply uh, and not much demand to get rid of it, so we can just lower the price to to obtain that. So So the banks are less needing your money as a consumer at a time when we want more safety on that money. So basically what's happening, what I see is the consumer, us, the general public, our needs are in conflict with the bank's needs at this time. Well, if your need is safety, Mm -hmm. then it's not in conflict. Well, what I mean is that if your need is uh, to, to grow your wealth, then it is in conflict. So let me rephrase because yes, that's very true. So what I mean is that our need to store cash and get a good rate on it and that safety is, that's our need. The bank's need at this time is we don't really need your money. We have other capital. We want, we're going to have lower interest rates that we will pay you to put your money in our storage tank. So that's the conflict where they don't need our capital. We want our capital to grow as fast as possible. Now that is if we're looking at ourselves as the customer of the bank. And I think this is crucial because as soon as we look at what is the bank actually doing, we can model the bank instead of being just a customer of the bank. And what the bank is doing is finding out a way to grow their money faster than their than what they're paying out on deposits. And so they're using arbitrage, they're using leverage, they're using cash flow, they're earning interest, they're in a position of as much control as possible. And just because they don't need your money at this time to get in control, they still are using those same principles of the bank. Absolutely, and and you bring up a really good concept I don't think people uh, understand is uh, banks are not not lending their money. They're, they're lending somebody else's money and then getting a return on it. Yes. Uh, we won't get into the fractional reserve banking in this podcast. We've talked about it a little bit before. People ought to look up that concept. You can you can YouTube it on Khan, Khan Academy. Uh, they have a really good um, explanation of that. But one of the things I think you're, you're getting at, Rachel, in the article, it says that for those stashing cash, the average savings account rate is down to just 0.05%. So that's 505. 5%. And, and in a lot of cases, it's even less. Um, so let's just let's just put this in perspective for, for the listeners. If you have a hundred thousand dollars over the course of a year, that means that they will pay you fifty dollars over that entire course of the year. So back that up. You said if you have a hundred thousand dollars. $100,000, they will pay you $50 over the course of the year. Consequently, then, if they use that $100,000 and then they lend it to somebody for a mortgage at 3%, they will make $3,000 on that. That's 60 times what they're paying you. So, okay, so okay. I'm going to put this in the chat here. So they're paying you $50 on a $100,000 deposit. But loaning out the same money, you said if if it's at three percent, right? Right, and it's a lot lower than that, but it's just it's easier math. Yeah. Then they make three. How much? Thousand dollars that year. Three thousand. That's a sixty times what they paid you for that fifty dollars. Sixty times. So that's their return. That's their return. Sixty times return. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't make profit. I'm not. I'm not saying that whatsoever. I'm just saying that this this is the consequences of having a low interest rate environment. You're saying, "Hey, I'm only making this, but I'm giving I'm giving it to a institution, and they're making sixty times that. So, what if I could store it like we we advocate, store it somewhere else to get a better rate of return?" And then we can use our money like the bank is using it to lend out to um, access other 
um, cash flowing investments. Like that's a cash flowing investment for the for the bank, the mortgage loan, and then also get returns that are better, net returns that are better than just trying to grow our, our money in a bank until an opportunity comes along. Chris, I think that's really crucial. And I'm not sure how clear this comes across because I think sometimes it can sound like really complicated, but at the bare bones, the bank is paying a little bit to have capital. They're earning a lot when they send that capital out to work to earn an income for them. And if the bank can do it, so can you. That means the best thing you can think about if you want to use those principles of being your own bank is to figure out how can you earn more on your cash than the cost of capital. And again, that sounds really complicated, but what we're doing is we're saying, if I can access cash at a lower rate and I can go ahead and send it out to work for me in a cash flowing investment that earns higher than what I'm paying, then I'm using that spread, that arbitrage, and I'm being the bank, which Mm -hmm. is the power of being able to not just have to lean on this low interest rate environment right now and say, well, I guess that's all I can get on my cash and I'm just going to park the cash in the bank and that's all I can ever hope for. Yes. And let's take this, let's continue with the more economic lessons here. What I'm finding in my experience is that many of the banks are actually shuttering locations. So they're closing temporarily, I presume, locations. Even if they're open, they're allowing you only to come in the bank by appointment only. And even before the coronavirus, people were storing a lot more money in the bank. Um, and the services, the customer service was getting poorer and poorer and poorer. Um, and what I think that says is, is that once again, they don't have to fight for our money. They don't have to. You know, customer service is one way to um, entice people to bring their money to the bank. Mm-hmm. It's one of the ways. Hey, look, when we walk in, we give you great customer service. We we make sure you can get your money quickly. We can make sure you have other services such as a trust, a, a wealth department, a very easy to print checks, whatever it is. It's gotten very, very poor. Well, it's really gotten poor if you can't even go into these branches anymore. And you can only go through the drive-throughs, and I and I've also noticed that the drive-through lines, even though they're longer, um, they're trying to limit the amount of people that are in the bank, so they have fewer employees. So the drive-through lines are longer and longer and longer, and yet people continue to put their money into the bank. So there's no incentive for them to get better at mm-hmm. this. And this yeah. is just basic economics. You know, until, we have a- until people start doing something differently with their money, the, the banking industry will continue to do what, they, what they're trending to do. Which, again, every business is in operation to make a profit. And exactly right. they are doing that very well. And I never want to come across as though we don't like the banking industry. We they're doing fantastic work. They're doing a, they have a very profitable business model. The point is that you do not have to just be the customer of the bank. You can instead act like the bank by modeling what they're doing in your very own life. We actually have a comment here, um, John Fox Ward, and thanks for joining us again, John. He said, typical 0.1% savings slash checking account rate with an incredible 2% mortgage rate is 200 times or 20,000% return return rate in favor of the banks, which it is. That's the arbitrage that we're talking about. So you can do the same thing in your financial life. What that requires though, is thinking outside the box. We also have another comment from Nolan Rosler. Um, The best place is a high cash value participating whole life insurance policy. Nolan, um, yes, that is absolutely correct. And you've let the cat out of the bag. So let's go ahead and talk about that way that we have seen is a powerful way to do what the banks are doing by not just having to earn that 0.1% or 0.05% return and not even be able to go into the banking institution and have that relationship like we're looking for in a bank. How can we model the banking practices 
get that better return on our liquid cash. Because here's the thing. I think often people look at this entire landscape. And if we just kind of zoom out for a second, what's the first solution everyone goes to? Oh, I guess savings is dead. I shouldn't save money. The only way I can get a good return, I'm going to have to jump that money over the fence from savings into investing, take on the risk. I'm going to have to tie up my capital somehow. I'm going to have to throw that in the stock market, hope that I'm going to have a really high return like a, oh, what was that GameStop that yesterday um, has been going crazy. And, and they're looking for that kind of um, spike, skyrocket returns. And they think, well, that's the way to prosper financially. I have to look for those flashes of something super sexy, super cool. And I have to predict that in advance. I have to get those high returns if I'm ever going to move forward financially. That is not true. That is not the way that you have to operate in order to be financially successful. Instead, what we can do is figure out how do we store our liquid which means your savings money. How do you store that in a better place, a better tank where it's actually growing more for you? And then how do you use that in the most efficient, effective way possible to put into other investments that are going to earn you that kind of arbitrage? So let's go ahead and talk about, um, Bruce, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit too. Is there anything you wanted to talk more about on the interest rates before we talk about cash value life insurance? Well, I, I, I would think that some, some people say, well, you're talking about savings accounts, but what about... Uh, other accounts like CDs. Well, CD, a one-year CD currently is only paying on average 0.24%. Sorry, a, what was that I, percentage again? I need to listen and type at the same time. 0.24. 0.24. A little better. Still not yeah, awesome. But you have to tie, it's not liquid. You have to tie up your money for a full year to get that. Now, this is another thing that people don't realize. Um, you know, people people are hesitant to tie their money up at 0.24 because they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense because what if rates go up, then I can't get to my money um, for a year. But that's not true. People don't understand CDs. They always say you have a penalty in almost every uh, CD contract that I've sent. You simply, you simply forfeit the interest that you've earned on that CD. There's no, there's no surrender penalty from the, so let's say that you put a hundred thousand dollars in a one year CD to get point, um, two, four, which would be, uh, $240 for that year. I'm sorry. Yeah. $240 for that year. Um, if you decided all of a sudden there's a, there's something you need that hundred thousand dollars, that's going to get you more than $240. You would be glad to give up the 240 to move that $100,000 somewhere else. Uh, five-year rates are only at 0.78. So it's about three times as what the one year, but you got to tie your um, money up for an additional four years. So people are not doing that. So what, what does that mean? People are just keeping it in the savings accounts. So that's pushing the savings rates down even further. So that's the only other thing that I wanted to bring up about how the Banks are operating now, and once again, it's it, they're not doing anything illegal. It's just basic economics mm -hmm. of how it works. So now let's look at what we say is another way to store cash is into um, high cash value uh, uh, whole life insurance contracts. Now they do the same thing. See, all financial institutions are are competing with other financial institutions for the capital. Mm -hmm. That's what people don't realize is that you know. Um, the major financial institutions are Wall Street, banks, pension funds, endowments and pension funds are about the same, and insurance companies. That's where most of the capital is stored. So they're always competing against each other for capital. Well, so what do insurance companies do? Well, years and years ago, uh, they lobbied Congress to make you know, the cash value growth on this and attack and the uh, death benefit tax free. So that's a, that's a great benefit. Mm -hmm. um, they also now have, um, they also have a death, a leveraged death benefit for your family. They also have, uh, these are things that have been added over the years. Now they have chronic illness riders mm -hmm. that they put on the policy. So that if you can only do two of the six daily activities, 
They have you have the ability to put riders on it so that you can have it self-completing if you actually become disabled. Mm-hmm. So that your savings plan will complete throughout the contract. So they're doing the same thing. Um, they're competing like any other financial institution. And one of the ways they're competing, unlike banks, because banks don't know how long you're going to keep that money in the bank, right? They have no idea. But by contract, um, you actually have um, a contract with an insurance company and they're expecting some premium payments every year. So they can look at this on a long range um, vision with this, and thus they can pay you a greater rate of return for that. Now, they still give you other um, things that are very appealing, like guaranteed to get a loan from their, their reserves um, by contract. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people tell me all the time, or they ask me all the time, why do they do this? You know, why do they allow you to take a, a, a loan from your cash value? Well, think about it. One, they're trying to make it appealing to get people to put money into their financial institution, just like any other financial institution. Mm-hmm. But the but the real is every state, has, that's a law in order to offer that contract. So the states are actually uh, saying, you don't have to do it, but in order to do business in our state, you have to have that ability for people to, to lend against their cash value. Which so, actually, I'm going to just spill the beans a little bit here. I cannot believe still to this day that more people don't know about this concept. I mean, I really can't. I feel like (laughs) it's, I feel that it's becoming more mainstream in Mm -hmm. a way. I feel like a lot more people are talking about this, whether they're using the term cash value life insurance. Um, We specific, we'll call it specially designed whole life insurance. You may hear it called infinite banking, privatized banking. We use both of those terms as well. Cash flow banking this whole idea of using a insurance policy that has a death benefit and a cash value inside of that death benefit that you're able to use and access that portion of your death benefit. It's a fascinating concept. And what's really interesting is a, I cannot believe everyone doesn't already know about this. I mean, when we have people who come to us and say, why in the world has, have I not heard about this? I feel like there's a lot of uh, incentive for everything just to kind of stay status quo and everyone to keep doing things the way that everything has already not always been done, I guess, to do things the way that normal people are doing them. But what's interesting is this whole idea of using life insurance goes back way back, way before even 401ks were in place. These have been used for hundreds of years. And what's really interesting is this is the way that probably our grandparents and our great grandparents saved and stored money. It's not new yet at the same time, it feels like it's a secret. It feels like it's this hidden information that only a select few, the super wealthy and those really, really in the know have. And yet at the same time, it's something accessible to just about everyone. So that's one piece. The other part I wanted to um, really just comment on here you, you just brought up this idea that you're able to borrow against your cash value. Just It's a contractual guaranteed ability to do that just because you have the cash value in your policy. What is so interesting about that is that when you access and use your cash value, I want to be really clear about this. You are not taking out your cash value and stopping that growth and putting the money to work somewhere else the same way you would if you had your money in a bank account or in a CD. You talked about you don't have a penalty to take your money out of a CD, but you just stop the growth and the the compounding. So what happens though, inside a life insurance policy, you don't take your cash out, you borrow against it. It's a really fancy term called collateralization, but your cash value keeps growing with those dividends and interest inside the policy. And then while it's still growing, you borrow against that capital and put dollars to work guaranteed dollars that you don't have to qualify for. You don't have to show a financial statement, show the proof that you're going to repay it in a certain way. And you're able to put those dollars to work in another investment vehicle, which means you're getting that ability to, to arbitrage just like the bank does. So it's a fascinating tool. It works amazingly better than I've seen any other savings tool. It's safe. Your dollars don't drop in value like a savings tool. It's liquid because you can access and use it like a savings tool, and it is growing at competitive compounding 
uninterrupted growth rates better than any other savings tool I've ever seen. And yet at the same time, it feels like a giant secret. I don't understand it. <laughs> well, I think here, the reason it's a, it's a, it, it, it's, a, it's not a secret, but the reason it isn't mainstream rate, Rachel's insurance companies are very conservative on their expenditures. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so they do not, they do not uh, actually advertise very much because they would like to keep their expenses down. So they have to, they have to actually make a decision on how they're going to get this out to the general public. Well, they tend to do it by financial planners and insurance producers mm -hmm. by, yeah, actually, right. by actually uh, getting the word out through them instead of just making this blank. And now a few companies do it, you know, like Northwestern Mutual, you'll, you will see, you will see them actually uh, advertise and you will see on occasion mass mutual do it also. These are behemoth companies that have been around for you know, a long time and they have a lot of capital, but it's not only from their insurance products. They also have some security products that they have and they've made that decision. Now, there are other companies, the, the traditional, the, the other traditional mutual companies that have decided that, yes, we could advertise and we could maybe get some more people, but we're not sure that we're getting that much more to make up for the advertising cost. So any good business has to weigh, you know, how much revenue is coming in for that advertising cost. And most of these conservative companies choose not to. And they rely on financial planners and insurance producers to actually um, explain the concept. Because Which I think not, then, go ahead, Bruce. Well, this concept is not, it's not magic. I always say this all the time. It's mm -hmm. not magic. It's not complicated, if, but people make it complicated. So they, yes. you, you can't just go and say, apply online and, you know, fill this out and you have the, you have your banking system. It's you have right. to actually design it a certain way. And that's the, that's the art and the science to this, according to what people need. You know, Bruce, what I also think is interesting, actually, we've got comments on both YouTube and Facebook. So we're going to have to come to those in just a second. But um, so John and Nolan, hang tight with us just for a minute. What I think is really interesting is if you look at the concept of the insurance companies are working through producers like you and I, we then as producers have a giant choice to make. And it is either do what's easy, what everyone already has heard about, what all the rhetoric is about, and go with the flow and do what is common and what might seem to be less challenging on our behalf. We would have to educate far less. We would, um, it would just probably be a lot easier. Hang up our sign and say, you get better um, investment returns if you invest with us. And there you go. Then we can manage someone else's money, but we have to decide are we going to do what seems easiest or are we going to do what is truly in someone's best interest, which then I feel is this, it, it's this struggle against the grain, if you will. It's communicating something completely opposite from what everyone else is thinking and saying and doing. I think it's the same in the health world. I mean, you have, well, you have a pain in your, I don't know, in your eye. You could immediately say, well, I'm going to go to the hospital and I'm going to have surgery on my eye and hopefully they'll figure out the problem. Or you can go through the process of figuring out, well, is it something I'm doing with my health? Is it something that I need better sleep? Is it something that I need to maximize my minerals in a certain um, ratio in my body? And how am I going to supplement that correctly? And what do I need to do at a cellular level to change my entire physiology so that I can fix what is happening in my eye, which might be a side effect of other things that most people would just overlook. And I think really that comes down to uh, as a producer, we have a moral obligation, I feel, to do the right thing and to really figure out what is the true right way to truly build wealth. And if you're going to do that, and I'm going to make a certain decision for myself, what's the best way for me to build wealth? Why would I say, well, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to use privatized banking because I know that it's the right thing to do, but I'm just going to go sell the easy thing over here to everyone else because that's what what is common and standard and, and easy to um, to communicate about. And so I think maybe that's a big part of it. Maybe I think there's, it's a challenging to go against the grain, but at the same time, that doesn't mean it's the wrong thing. Um, I Let's go ahead and go to some 
of our commentary here. So first to Nolan. Mm. All right. So what is your thought on putting your savings through a properly designed whole life policy, then taking a policy loan and use that cash to buy silver? I want to comment on this first because um, Nolan, you may or may not know this. My husband and I actually, so we had kind of some uh, evolutions of our savings process. First, we were saving money even during college. Most people were buying flat screen TVs with their um, stipend. And we instead said, well, let's not buy any clothes, which we lived like poppers and we probably shouldn't have, but we saved all this money. And I think we graduated college with like 10,000 in savings or something in the bank, regular bank savings. We were frustrated with the same thing. It's not growing as much as we'd like it to. Then fast forward. Okay. How can we hold savings in a better place? That's going to have this long-term store of value. We put a lot of money into gold and silver. The challenge was we came into starting a business. We needed to put capital into the business. I quit my job. So husband and I were both working. I quit my job, become a stay-at-home mom. We're down in income. And then he is, uh, there was a word. I'm going to think of it as soon as the show is over, but they reduced the pay for military people um, for, for, the, for a short time. And I think he was taking like every Friday off and not paid. Um, and so his income was reduced. We have all these extra expenses in the business. We have a baby, which is an added expense in the house. My income is down. And oh, by the way, now let's dip into that gold and silver, which by the way, is cut in half of the value. Let me tell you, there was some great, great, great frustration in our house. So we look back and I mean, honestly, everyone can always in hindsight say, why in the world did we not know then what we know now and what would we have done differently? I mean, what I absolutely would have absolutely done differently is instead of putting all that capital into first just bank savings and then into precious metals with gold and silver, I would have said, let's put as much as we can into cash value life insurance policy. We probably could have had, I don't even know, eight, 10 real estate properties by now, plus gold and silver. Absolutely, we would have done some gold and silver, but not only that, because that does not cash flow. It is still a speculative investment. Even though it's hard, a hard, physical, tangible asset, it still is speculative. And you have to speculate, is it going up or going down in the future? And if you're believing gold and silver are going to go up, you're betting against the economy, which is the opposite direction that I want things to go. I still think it's super smart to have silver as well. So Bruce, did you have anything else you want to share there? We have several more comments, but I wanted to well, I think share that, here. Just to summarize, um, I bought, I have silver and I bought it for my cash value. I did not buy it as an investment. I bought it as a hedge against inflation. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, you know, you, you need to have build up a savings emergency fund first. Then, then you can use that savings of, after you have we we suggest you know six months to a year. Mm -hmm. um, then I would I would look to start to do some cash flowing investments, and once you get that going, then I would look to to hedge against inflation with some kind of commodity, silver or gold or or whatever you want to use. And if somebody wants an idea of how much silver and gold, uh, you should I I believe you should take your um, monthly living expenses that you need. And uh, multiply once again between um, uh, three times that. So let's say it's let's say your monthly expenses are five thousand, and you take fifteen thousand dollars worth of of gold or silver, because then if if uh, inflation goes, then that ought to, and then you have a hard economic time. That gold or silver should actually uh, follow that inflation for another three and and in and actually uh, grow so that you can actually have three to six months of additional um, hedge against this in the form of silver and gold at that time. I like silver only because it's more fungible. It's easier to uh, turn in a silver coin than it is to turn in a, a brick of a bullion of gold. So that's just my own personal opinion. Bruce, I just popped into the chat on both Facebook and YouTube um, a blog that we have done. This was actually probably about three years ago. This is on how to save money like the wealthy. And we talk specifically on how to break down your savings like that and think about, um, I mean, we think about in our own personal life, I think about six to 12 months worth of expenses. And you need to think about how much money do you need in 15 minute money that you can access right away. This would be like bank money, or it's in your safe or under the mattress or in the coffee can in the freezer, or wherever you put the cash. 
Um, so that's something you can get to right away. And then cash value life insurance is a powerful tool and you can absolutely access that cash. But we would say you probably want to give that some time, like maybe, I don't know what the official thing we can say is, but about a week or so before you're going to have that cash deposited in your account to be able to use. So while you're able to make the request, hey, I want $100,000 of my cash value against my cash value. I caught my own self right there. Um, right now I make the request. It's going to go through, but that usually takes about a transfer process, like seven days about, right? Yeah, five to seven days. Yes. And so then what's really interesting, if you check out this article on how to save like the wealthy, even once you've finished filling up that six to 12 months of expenses that you're able to cover, if you had no income coming in, you're still in a position of, you still want to continue building this liquid capital because it's not only an emergency fund, it's also your opportunity fund, which is the power of having cash. Then you can go use that cash to invest and take advantage of opportunities right away. So that article is in um, both chats for anyone who's listening. Um, all right, let's go over to John Fox Ward again here. So depositors don't realize that they are the lender or lending when they leave their money in a commercial bank. Bruce, do you want to talk about that? Because it's absolutely true. Yeah, it's 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 the same thing. I always tell people that um, you know banks really are not lending their own money; they're lending the depositors' money. Yes. Uh, again, it's not illegal. I mean, they get bank charters and are allowed to do that. Um, so people, yeah, people think that. What's interesting is, and, and once again, we're not going to get into fractional reserve banking, but people think that if they have $100,000 in the bank, they could simply go to the bank and say, I'd like my $100,000 right now all in cash. Oh, and, no. and I would challenge somebody to try that sometime, even on a smaller amount. Let's say you have you know, $50,000, $100,000, maybe even $10,000 in the bank and go in and say, yeah, I'd like to have $5,000 all in 100s. I've done that before when I bought silver and it's like all of a sudden sirens go off and people are scurrying around and all of a sudden the manager comes up and says, I'm sorry, sir, we cannot give you that much cash right now. And then you feel like the criminal that's trying to like rob the bank or something. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> like, it's my money. Yeah. And then um, I've only done this once, but I've, I've asked other people to do it for me and they get the same response. Mm. And it's because they have, they only have to carry so much cash of, of depositors in the actual bank. And so they said, what we're going to have to do is order that money for you and you can return next Thursday to get that money. And that's one of the reasons we tell people that you ought to have a safe in your house and you ought to carry some minimal amount what you think you feel comfortable in your own home, fireproof and so on and so forth, because if the banking function ever does freeze up for a, a certain amount of time, mm -hmm. um, the likelihood that you could not use your credit card because the banking function has frozen up. And if you want to then have normal commerce between a business, you'd have to have cash. So it's another reason too. So he's absolutely right. Um, they're not really lending their money. They're lending your money and they're, they're lending it in a fractional reserve way. So it's yes. not, there's not even a whole lot of money in the bank. And I would say it's OPM, other people's money. Robert Kiyosaki says OPM. You should always use OPM. What's really interesting is the bank is absolutely doing this. They're using your money right. and the Federal Reserve's money to you to send out and make loans with. The same way that when you use a cash value whole life insurance policy, you are using the life insurance company's money when you borrow against your policy you're actually using OPM. You're using their money. Yours is continuing to grow inside the bank savings account and you're putting their money to work in your other investment. That's the power and the profound difference between putting your money in the bank where you have to take it out, stop that compounding, use your own money to invest or in a life insurance policy, yours continues to grow. You use OPM, the life insurance company's money. Their general reserve is what they're actually giving you while yours keeps growing. Yeah. Let me be totally fair to the banks now, because I know somebody's going to say, nah, that's, you're, that's not exactly the way it works. And yes, it is the way it works, but the bank, but anybody, the investor in the bank does have to have money in reserve, their own personal money to get a bank charter. So you, and it, and then get a bank charter could take a decade to get a bank charter. So you, the investors will actually put up 
tens of millions of dollars in like an ex escrow account while mm, they're right. This. So it's not it's not totally fair to say that, but they're not. That's actually in an escrow account. Um, so it's not totally fair to say they're not using any of their money. They're just technically not using any of their money, but they have to put that money up. You know, Bruce, that's actually a good relation back over to cash value life insurance too, because you could say, well, I just have a life insurance policy, so I'm going to get access to the cash, the company's money. However, you get access to the life insurance company's money up to how much cash value you've built, which is built by your premium that you have funded into the policy plus growth through interest and dividends. So it doesn't mean, here's the thing. I have people sometimes ask me, hey, if I get a million dollar policy, then I can go get a million dollar loan from the life insurance company right away. No, this is not the case. It The amount you can borrow from the life insurance company is based on how much cash value you have, not the death benefit. The death benefit's the big number, the total amount that gets paid out when you pass away to whoever you have as a beneficiary, your children, your spouse, a charity, but it is the cash value, which is a portion of that death benefit that you can borrow against. And that is what you do fund by your own capital. It's not just purely the insurance company's money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and technically, yes, the, the, they're also collateralizing using your death benefit because if you do die, then they will subtract any loans against the death benefit before they pay it out. Yes. But they, de they determine how much that you can actually loan by how much you've actually have in cash value at that time. So yes. yes, all those things are true. All right. So let's go back over to a few question comments uh, from Nolan here. Let me just make sure I'm getting to the right one. We've got a lot of comments today. Thank you guys for being so engaged in the conversation. This is just really awesome and helpful. Okay. So Nolan says, I think our rhetoric in regard to banks, I'm going to read all of his comments here so we can just comment on them as one chunk because it's a lot of comments here, um, needs to be more aggressive. There is a growing populist movement and people are waking up to how the elites are unjustly getting rich off our backs. These type of policies need to be part of this conversation. If we all store our money in whole life insurance policies, as opposed to banks, we're in a better position to fight the elite. And my goal, this is Nolan here, is to make this a part of the conversation, getting my license in Florida, and we'll be attempting to create video channel to make this a part of the conversation. And Nolan said the limit is 7,000 a day. That probably was in regards to you, um, Bruce, in, in terms of getting money out of the bank, but that may not necessarily be um, every bank. I'm not yeah, sure. I think, I think uh, yes, d depending on how much reserve. I know mine was, ac it was actually a $5,000 uh, request that I could only get 4,000. Now, it, it also, I think, depends on what time of day it is, you know, how much people have already requested money from the bank, you know, and, and physical cash. You know, some of them might, might actually carry more physical cash in the bank. Um, one thing, Nolan, you know, Nolan's been a great follower of ours and we, we appreciate all of, and boy, you know, Nolan, I get, I get so ticked off at the Federal Reserve and the banking industry because what people don't realize is the Federal Reserve is owned by the seven largest commercial banks uh, in the United States. Uh, there's nothing federal about the Federal Reserve. It's, it's a private institution. Um, but we can't totally, right now, we may in the future, blockchain, the blockchain um, may be able to get rid of it, but we still need these institutions to actually have exchange of money throughout other financial institutions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we can put pressure on them to actually provide better services, maybe higher interest rates, you know, so on and so forth. But to, to eliminate them completely in our, in our economy is really kind of from where I look at it. And a lot of people look at it. It's an impossibility right now because we do have to have quick exchange of capital between mm -hmm. individuals, between business to business, between business and individuals. Which you think about as well, just real quick. I mean, Bruce, you always talk about um, basically the, the, the society will meet the demands that are present. And I'm sure you said it in a different way, but the reason that banking exists is because, yes, we want to be able to have that quick transaction. I want to go to the grocery store and I don't want to have to fumble around for cash and get the cash from the ATM. I mean, I, I know there's people who use cash instead and, you know, more power to them, but I don't. And I'm usually cashless and I would like to pay as quickly as possible. You think about online transactions. We have online merchandise. How would you transact with Amazon, your cash? Um, there's just so many ways that we need to be able to have 
this quick ability to pay and have transactions, uh, some mechanism to fulfill that function. And so I think it's just the um, demand and the evolution of society causing this thing that maybe it's not an ideal solution, but at the same time, it works really well. There's always things that can be improved about something, but the um, innovation that created that in the first place was based on human need. Absolutely. Find a product that somebody needs or wants or find a problem that somebody doesn't care for or find a service that somebody wants. Yes. And that's that's how you develop an economy. Um, Yes. And so if all of a sudden the blockchain, people that understand the blockchain figure out that, oh, if you if you want to just pay us uh, for this service, twenty dollars a month. And all you have to do is uh, there's nowhere housing this money, but Rachel, you have your money, a Bitcoin, um, and you can transfer it right to me and we don't need a physical bank. Then all of a sudden the physical banks will have to do something differently. Right. They'll Um, evolve. Right. And everybody will get better for it. The Mm -hmm. The physical banks will get better. The blockchain will get better. We'll get better. Businesses will figure out that oh, well, this is a lot cheaper for me to use the blockchain than it is to use a point of sale with credit cards. So we'll just use that. Um, there's well, you all- look at like disruptive technology just keeps going faster and faster. And we can look at it with this, you know, doomsday kind of feel like the world's coming to end because of people profiting. We also can say people should profit. You should profit. Everyone should profit. How can we all profit together? How can we innovate? How can we do things more, more better? How can we improve the way we do things and be in a position of everyone growing? And I think that's ultimately what's going to end up happening. And we're almost at the top of the hour. We still have more comments coming in here. But um, Nolan, thank you for all of your um, comments about libertarianism leanings, populist with libertarian leanings. Andre Biswash jumped in. Nolan, your libertarian is showing. Um, uh, John Fox Ward says meant 0.01%. Maybe I should have said common as opposed to typical, but you get the point and the math. Yes, everyone. Thank you so much for being engaged today. Um, oh, Nolan agreed. We need banks, but they need lots less power. We can voluntarily do it by using alternatives. And that is the point. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you guys for being with us today. Um, I do want to say several things as we are closing. Um, but before I do, Bruce, is there anything you want to sh- share before we wrap up? No, I think, you know, it, the Federal Reserve has um, decided to push interest rates down uh, during times of what they consider economic, you know, strife. I'm a big proponent, and I'm, I'm sure Nolan agrees with this, is I'd like the free market to decide things, but we're not there right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and until we get there, or I should say back to there, then uh, we need to just put um, pressure on financial institutions the best way we can. And, that, and, and we do that by our own uh, decisions that we make, using a savings and loan, credit union, you know, other alternatives to a real commercial bank, or, or use uh, store your money in other places like um, an insurance uh, company mm-hmm. instead of in the bank, and only use the bank for transactional purposes. So um, we, we as individuals can put pressure on the system and that's, that's how happens. You know, whether you go to Starbucks or you don't go to Starbucks, you go to the coffee place across the street. Starbucks has to get better. The coffee place across the street. Make my own coffee. Just kidding. Actually, yeah. my husband makes my coffee. Yeah. So yes, this is what's great, but not enough people understand the economics and we need to get people to understand basic economics too, which will help the cause, you know, going forward. Absolutely. I think this conversation was really exciting for me, partially because this is something that I think, uh, Bruce, you and I could uh, chat about for a long time and not even need any notes. And it's just what's really interesting is that if people become more aware of specially designed life insurance, we can turn the tide of a lot of challenges that our country is facing. And I think the number one most important thing is this idea of gathering and gaining control. Because when you take responsibility and you chart the course of your own financial future and you say, I want money in my control, 
I want to have guarantees. I want certainty. I want to be able to know what is going to be there for me in the future. And then I'm going to actively invest in opportunities that I know in control. You're now in a position where you're personally almost seceding from this entire system that is anti your control. I mean, if everyone could see and wake up to realize that the typical way of financial um, problem solving in our country does not put you in control, I think that's the number one step towards getting in control and towards being in a better financial position. And so if anything we're talking about today sounds interesting, or if it sounds completely off the wall or completely um, opposite from everything you've ever heard, hopefully you've seen a little bit of why that might be the case. We have some really great resources that you can use to kind of build your knowledge and start digging in and figuring out what is this privatized banking thing all about. I said that very fast, privatized banking, just in case that came across in a weird way. Um, It's also called infinite banking. We have specifically for you the quick and easy guide for investors that helps you understand how you can use the same money and put that to work in two places at the same time so you can boost investment returns on your investments. Plus, you can also do that without adding extra risk. You can get that at themoneyadvantage.com. You can also get that straight at privatizedbankingsecrets.com. Both of those websites will get you right there. We also, I would love to invite you, if you like this video, please go ahead and like it on YouTube or on Facebook, wherever you're listening from. And we would love for you to subscribe. You can subscribe in multiple ways. One is subscribing right on YouTube where you're listening and watching right now. You can also subscribe to our podcast. If you go over to themoneyadvantage.com, there's a button at the top that is subscribe to podcast. We have this podcast that we produce every week. We are usually live for the conversation, but it's also on all the other channels. This is iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and all of the um, podcast channels as well. So you can absolutely find us there. We would love to hear your questions, jump in on a live conversation or send us an email. We have methods to do that. You can email hello at themoneyadvantage.com with your questions. You can also go to the top of our website at themoneyadvantage.com. Right underneath is, I think so, So send us a voicemail, a voice message, and you can click that and talk to us, a a 90-second voice message. We'd love to be able to answer your question through the show or directly, whatever's more appropriate for your situation. And then if you're liking what you're hearing, we would love to help you personally. So if you're in a situation where you're saying, I'm wanting to use this privatized banking, I've maybe been following you for a while, or maybe I've heard about it from somewhere else and I'm really ready to lock in, do the work. I have good savings habits. I have cash that I'm storing somewhere else that's not ideal for me. I want to put that to better work. I want to start using this concept of arbitrage and collateralizing my capital and putting it to work in two places at the same time. We'd love to talk to you personally. We have a whole entire advisor team, not just one advisor. It's not just Bruce and I. And the beauty of that is that we have a wide open opportunity to meet with you and figure out what exactly we can do in your financial life to help you move towards time and money freedom so that you can have all the pieces of your financial life working together to accomplish your goals, not working apart from each other, not countering your efforts, but moving you all towards that goal of time and money freedom. Bruce, I know that was a lot. Anything else you want to share? No, I think everything's good today. It was, uh, I like talking about this stuff. Awesome. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us here today. And in closing, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk 
and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated, and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.